Well, good morning, church. We're in Revelation 13. If you've got your book, uh, these these notes, this book here is like a journal. There's a place if you haven't received one. Uh, They've got, ushers have got them. Have we already handed those out again? And and, uh, we got more next, oh, I think we're out. So we're going to have more next week. For those of you that have them, we're going to be, we're going to start on page 46 this morning uh, in your notes. So if you want to continue taking notes so you can have a record of these, these journals are so so meaningful. I have journals and I've been journaling God's Word for a long time. It is an incredible enriching practice for us to go back in time to pull a book like this off the shelf and see what God was teaching us at certain seasons of life. Now if you're like me, then you're starting to forget which season you're in. You're starting to forget what year it is, you know, and you start to remember things and people ask you, when did this happen? And you think, I, I think it was this year or that year, and it's sometimes we don't quite get it right, but these journals can help, help set these mileposts uh, as we study God's Word together. It's a fellowship. It's a fellowship of the believers. Uh, we don't need a fellowship of the ring. We have a fellowship of the Word that God gives us here, and these journals help us on that journey as we do that. Before we jump back into Revelation, though, uh, I just want to say we have covered a lot of material, and, and the, su- the summer is definitely flying by. And I love that when we're able to track that journey, just like we try to remember those years. But as we started on the first Sunday in June, and we're going to wrap up at the last Sunday of August, we will have covered a lot of material, but I hope in your journal you're listening for the moments of hope, for the truths that are enduring for God's people. Because as we study Revelation, we definitely find ourselves, and after three plus decades of ministry, I know and I hear it from folks whenever we study or look at or read or or go through a series in Revelation, why do we have to talk about all the, the, the terrible things that are going to happen? And the reality is, is there's a story that we're living in. There's a story that is unfolding. And before we get too far into that, let's look back at how far we actually have come since the beginning of June, just to kind of clue us in and get us back on track to where we're going to land today. We started this series, and we started out in Revelations chapter 1, and with chapter 1 we started looking at John's vision uh, of Jesus' message to the churches and his plans for eternity. We quickly moved to our next week in chapters 2 and 3, and and we heard how Jesus was addressing those seven churches before giving us the prophecy. The churches received uh, a performance review. (laughs) That's fun, right? Anybody like performance reviews? I don't see any hands going up. Anybody like to give performance reviews? Yeah, there's probably a bunch of hands go up. As, As a preacher, I know there's plenty of people that listen to the words that we say and give performance reviews on a regular basis. So, uh, for anything from the notes to the outfit to, to the length of the sermon, right? We move from there to chapters 4 through 7 where Jesus began to unveil the future plan and the throne room we saw and the Lamb of God, the seven seals of tribulation. As we continue through, we get into chapters 8 and 10 and, and Charles introduced and, and explained and led us through the seven trumpets of judgment. Uh, that little scroll, and then it concluded in the way that we just wrapped up our time before this message in worship. Last week, Pastor Jonathan introduced the two witnesses. And in that storyline, we see how the Antichrist takes a prominent place to begin to carry out the plan of the most evil, created, existing being that has ever been known. It's the dragon. He was introduced as the dragon. We know him as Satan. 
And as we went through that, chapters 11 and 12, if you remember, we, we had a little moment where there was a pause, and then we came to, now, now we come to Revelation chapter 13. I don't know what you feel about numbers. I don't know if anybody's favorite number is 13. Uh, our culture likes to play around with numbers, and sometimes 13 is not considered the more popular number. Sometimes we, we you know, we, 13 is an unlucky number. And I know we like to joke about these things, and, and most of us do, but I, I want to share something with you that, that there really is no lucky or, or unlucky number. For those that are, that are bought with the blood of Christ, those of us that are in Christ, we don't have unlucky numbers. We don't have lucky numbers because there is only one, and He is the only one, and His name is Jesus Christ. And He presides over all the numbers. He created the numbers. <laughs> so as we get into Revelation 13, even though this is a dark chapter in what is unfolding in the history of mankind, the future history of mankind, God still is presiding over this plan. So as we get to Revelation 13, we're going to see the beast of the sea and the beast of the earth. These two round out what I call the red dragon's team to carry out the final assault on God's people and God's plan. But don't forget about Revelation 12.8. Revelation 12.8, if you have, if you, you can look back a couple pages in your notes right there. Revelation 12.8 talks about the battle that had ensued and the battle that took place. And it says, but he did not prevail. He hasn't prevailed. He will never prevail. Amen. Well, just like a baseball game, I don't know if there's any baseball fans in here. I'm a, I'm a hardcore Atlanta Braves fan and and they happen to be the best team in baseball right now, and they beat the second best baseball team yesterday, and they've already beat the third best baseball team, and then they beat the Guardians, who I think are currently the fourth best baseball team. And so I'd say if you can beat three out of the top four bests and you currently have the best record, I would say you're the best baseball team. Well, my wife and I, when we were here back in the 90s, we used to scrounge up enough coin and, and cash and try to buy a couple of tickets to the Orioles games. Uh, just to go sit in that park up there in Baltimore, and I would always get a scorecard, and you start filling out the names. Well, the reason you have a scorecard is so you can know who the players are and what their position is, and when you know what their position is, you know what their purpose is on the field. Well, we have kind of that kind of thing right here in Revelation. Uh, we've got a scorecard. I want to share it with you. Dr. Ed Heinsohn kind of created this to help guide us through understanding what that looks like as we continue through. In fact, uh, we've, we've already had in, on the scorecard, we, there are seven major primary players on the scorecard, and Pastor Jonathan introduced us to the first five last week. The first one is the woman in Revelation chapter 12, which represents Israel. The second was the dragon, also in Revelation 12, and represents Satan. And then we were introduced to the male child, which is the offspring, the male child offspring of, of the woman who is Israel, and that would be Jesus Christ. And then we saw Michael in 12.7. That was that battle, 7 through 12, that Satan and his, his, his demons did not prevail against. And he is the archangel. And then we had in 12.17, the rest of her offspring was mentioned. And we understand them and know them to be the seed of the woman or saved Israel during this time. Now, mind you, the church, those of us that have a relationship with Jesus Christ today, do not walk through what the, the, the rest of her offspring walk through. Because we've already been resurrected away from this, this earth. 
while this battle is going, there's another storyline that we'll cover here in, 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 in the next couple of weeks that helps us understand what's happening, what we're engaging in. And then this, this morning, we're going to look at the last two players that round out these seven primary players on this scorecard, the beast of the sea and the beast of the earth. The beast of the sea is the Antichrist and the beast of the sea is the false prophet. Now, find your place in Revelation chapter 13. Uh, I hope you've already found that. But first, let, let me just say this. My prayer for all of us this morning is that we truly and from the deep in, inside, from deep inside our innermost hurts, that we walk out of here with a strong assurance that we are not without hope. Today, I know we're doing Revelation, we're walking through this, and Revelation is a prophetic book and it's telling us of things to come. And even what we will read today, the application of what I just said has deep application for that day. But it's my prayer that we all walk out of here understanding that we have hope. We are not without hope today and forevermore. Beloved, we can all see the times and how they've grown increasingly worse. You know what's really interesting? The, the, the longer you live, some people call it the older you get. The worse we look at the world around us, or the more we look at the world around us and declare it worse than it ever has been. Every generation, it doesn't matter who you are. It's a really odd experience for us. So when I was 10 years old, I used to hear aunts, uncles, and grandparents and preachers on stages in, in churches like this one would talk about how terrible the world has become. And we would complain about all these TV shows and all these these. these, these episodes around the world that were reporting wars and battles and how the end is coming. It's really incredible and it's really interesting to think about. The older that I get, the more I say those same things. And I was living in the world that everybody before me was saying was so terrible. Here's what I want you to know. We are caught up in a story that will continue to see things get worse around us. There's no magic bullet that we can pull out that stops all of the darkness from advancing. There is a storyline that is happening here, and, and the why behind our, the question, why are things still getting so bad, is it doesn't come with an answer that we correct something we've done wrong to stop it. Because, beloved, what we need to know is what Proverbs 18.10 tells us, and that is the name of the Lord is a strong tower, and the righteous run to it and are safe. Our reaction to the world around us shouldn't be, how can we stop all of the darkness? Our reaction to the world around it should be, I'm running to the name of the Lord who is a strong tower, and I will run into him and I will be safe. That's Christian hope. This is why we hope. He will never die. He will never fail. He will never reject his people. He will always answer them, and he will keep every promise he has made to his church and to those who belong to him. Beloved, this, this is Christian hope. So why is it all getting worse? Why do we get to Revelation 13 and so many horrible things have already happened and even more difficult things are happening to people, people that bear the image of God? Why are they happening here? I think it's paramount that we understand where Christ is in the biblical narrative at any place we land in the Bible. 
Revelation 13 is one of those. But for us to truly understand that, we can see that this book is divided into two sections, right? You've heard this hopefully hopefully so far in this series. We have the first three chapters, and then we start in chapter 4, and in the first three chapters, it's set in John's day. John the Revelator, John the Recorder, John who was caught up in the heavens and given this vision to record. In the first three chapters, those events happened in John's day, but from chapter 4, moving forward, chapter 4 tells us, now I'm going to tell you about the things that have to happen, that things that are yet to come. And in chapters 4 through 22, we read about events that are both yet to come, listen to this, don't miss this, and must come. See, we have Christian hope, but we also follow a king who is sovereign and who has a plan. And I want you to know this morning that his plan, our God's plan, gives us hope. I want us to think about this journey and why God describes all of these things yet to come. Even though his church, his bride, will not experience so much of what we read in Revelation. Don't be mistaken, there's so much in Revelation we're going to experience, and we're going to cover some of that as we get into the month of August. The story that we find ourselves in cannot be clearly understood without understanding where it all started, and that applies to the story that's unfolding even right here in Revelation 13. But before I get there, jump back with me to Genesis chapter 3. You don't have to turn there. I think it's actually in the app on your notes. If we go back to Genesis chapter 3, we pick up and see what was already happening in this story. In Genesis chapter 3, in the first verse, we read, Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord had made. And he said to the woman, the serpent did, he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? Now if you recall this in Genesis 3, many of you have read this and, and, and you know what, 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 what occurred in Genesis 3. The woman looked at the serpent. By the way, she's talking to an animal who's talking back. That's an interesting little episode there. Could animals talk in the garden? We we don't know. We know that the curse of the serpent, he said, you are now going to crawl on your belly. What you were doing before, you'll no longer do. Could he have been able to talk? I don't know. Could Satan make a serpent talk? Probably. She's talking to him and she goes, No, 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 no. God said we can eat of all the fruit of the garden except for the tree that's in the middle. We're not to eat of it, nor are we to touch it lest we die. Now, God didn't necessarily say don't touch it. I kind of think that maybe Adam was so scared of God's command, he told Eve, don't touch it. It's like we tell our kids, right? When the stove is hot, don't touch it. Don't even go near it, right? If we can keep a border and a boundary between what is harmful to people that we love, then there's a greater chance that they won't experience the consequence of actually the evil that is intended for what we're trying to keep them from. And maybe that's what Adam said. We, we really don't know. But what we do know is that the serpent started twisting and deceiving these words. And the serpent said uh, in verse 4 to the woman, he says, you won't surely die. For God knows that in that day that you eat eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. You know what's interesting about that story? In the beginning of creation, we're in the third chapter of the existence of life on this planet at this point. At the beginning of creation, Satan says, if you do this, then you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. Could it be that God's creation was never intended to know evil? We knew God. He created us. But his intention was that we would never know evil. 
Satan was right. If we, if, if Eve engaged in this, it would be a grand disobedience in breaking God's commands. And that in itself would introduce evil. Well, you know what happens next. They ate and then God came looking for them. Down in verse 13, the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me. Don't forget that. As we get into Revelation 13, that is an important statement about the serpent, about the dragon, about Satan. She said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So the Lord God said immediately in scripture, we go from verse 13 to verse 14, immediately God looks to the serpent. He starts at where this all began. You see, this didn't begin in the garden. This began far before this garden when the serpent, who was Satan himself, who was an angel, who started to to clamor for his own pride and identity to be raised up and he wanted to be like God. Don't forget that as we get into Revelation 13. God looked and said to the serpent, because you have done this, you are cursed more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. And many of you may agree with this, and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. I don't know if you have enmity with snakes. I personally do, and so I'm okay. I think it's biblical. But listen to these last few words of verse 15. And between your seed and her seed, here we come, and he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. See, this storyline we find ourselves in, why are the things so dark here in Revelation? This is a continual outworking of the consequences of the events that started in Genesis 3, not moving towards the annihilation of everything on this planet, but in that destruction, in that darkness that people are going to be experiencing during these events in Revelation, moving towards a culmination of the return of the king and him setting things right. These things must happen so then the next thing will happen. Last week, Pastor Jonathan showed us the principal player on the scorecard on the the opposing team, and he is Satan. Revelation names him the dragon, and the dragon's plan was initiated back in Genesis 3 with that great deception in the garden. Things went way off course from that point, and they continue to go off course more and more every day. That's why the older we get, the more we turn around and say things are so much worse than they ever were. Beloved, they're going to continue to get worse. Deception has always been the dragon's weapon of choice. Ever since that day in Genesis 3, all humanity has cried out and begged, God, please fix this. And our God hears those pleas. Our God has a plan that gives us hope. Beloved, don't miss this this morning. Our God has a plan that gives us hope. Even though the church will not be walking through Revelation 13's events, our God has a plan that gives us hope. At any point in our life here today, we walk through seasons that feel very dark. feels like the evil one is coming right at us, but our God has a plan that gives us hope. On Resurrection Sunday, we lament 
the death of Jesus Christ on that Friday. And we celebrate the resurrection of his body back to life on that Sunday. You see, Friday is good because Sunday was coming. The, the death and the crucifixion of Friday could be seen only in the perspective of the life and the newness of life and the resurrection power that was going to happen on Sunday. You see, your Friday today gives you, you can have hope because your Sunday is coming. So don't lose hope. Beloved, the devil has to start running from the king. He's already started. And we shall never fear evil again. What do I do with my deal here? I want to show you this. This is my coffee cup. It is not filled with Diet Coke, as cups that get brought on stage normally are. I do like Diet Coke, and I will, I will support our pastor's scientific assessment that McDonald's has the greatest tasting Diet Coke anywhere. I had one yesterday over in, uh, uh, outside of Roanoke. But on this cup, it's a small cup. It's not a very big cup of coffee because I'm not a very big fan of coffee. So I have a little bit. But on this cup, when I had this cup, when I ordered this cup, I had this verse put on this cup from Zephaniah chapter 3 and verse 15. And I'll read it to you. It says this, the king of Israel, the Lord is in your midst. You shall never fear again. You see, this is a reminder of me to who God is, what God will do, and who I am to God. The Lord has taken away, in verse 15 of Zephaniah 3, the Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies, he tells Israel. And then he says, the king of Israel, the Lord is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. You see, our God has a plan that gives us hope. Let's look at Revelation 13. Finally, right? In Revelation 13, this chapter includes and introduces us to two beasts that are tasked with carrying out the dragon's evil agenda against God and his people. So who is the first beast? Well, if you look at our scorecard, we see the first beast back on our scorecard is the Antichrist. And I want us to see how intentional he is in imitating Christ. And, and I want to do this by way of another, another kind of a chart that helps you that, that Dr. Ed Heinsen gave us in his book, uh, Unlocking the Future on Revelation. When we think about the comparison, remember, the devil is always trying to imitate and become like God. So with this first, this first beast, he's doing that with this first beast. And with this first beast, we see that Christ in Revelation 19 that we'll get to in a few weeks, it's declared that he has many diadems. In other words, there is no number. But with the first beast, there's only 10 diadems. Close, but not quite there. Second, Christ is worthy of his name in Revelation 19. The Antichrist has blasphemous names, we read in Revelation 13.1. Jesus Christ causes men to worship God in Revelation 1 and 6. The Antichrist causes men to worship Satan. In fact, that's his primary task, to cause the whole world to worship Satan. Christ has power in the throne of God in Revelation 12.5. The Antichrist has power in the throne of Satan in Revelation 13.2. Jesus Christ died, but amen, he lives again. The Antichrist, the first beast, received a fatal wound where he was healed from that. You see how there's a, this, this, this competing nature of what the devil is trying to do. He sets himself up to be even, 
as close as he can to being like God, even like Jesus Christ. Heinsohn notes, though, there is no clear biblical representation for this beast in Scripture apart from here. But Daniel 7.3 gives us something that is, I think, a very close comparison. In Daniel 7.3, it says, and four beasts, four great beasts came up from the sea, each different from the other. In this chapter, it's apparent that the leopard, the lion, the bear, and the dragon parallel John's vision that was pointing to four world empires, Babylon, Media Persia, Greece, and Rome. But the empire that we read about here in just a second in Revelation 13 that is foreseen rising in the rising of the first beast will be the culmination of all evil human governments. Because the dragon, Satan, needs the beast to command the world leaders to accomplish his agenda. And we see that he has a fourfold agenda. Well, what does that look like? Revelation chapter 13, verses 1 and 2, let's read. It says, Then I stood on the sand of the sea, and I saw a beast rising up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and on his horns ten crowns, and on his heads a blasphemous name. Now the beast which I saw was like a leopard, his feet were the feet like a feet of a bear, his mouth was the mouth of a lion, and the dragon gave him his power, his throne, and great authority. Don't miss the significance of these symbols right here in these first two verses. But the, because the agenda of this first beast, number one, is that he will establish and control evil leaders and governments. That's what the dragon has tasked him with. Just like a first baseman has got to be clued into what's going on and not miss a throw. Like a catcher's got to know the signs that he's sending to the pitcher. Like a base runner needs to know how many outs there are. The dragon has to know his agenda and his purpose, that is, or the first beast has to know the agenda and the purpose the dragon has given him. And we see it begin to unfold here. But the significance of these symbols is so important as it describes a limited authority. If we look back at Daniel chapter 7, we're not going to study Daniel 7 today, but we find what several scholars believe represents the Antichrist here in Revelation 13. There are seven heads that are described, which equals the sum of the heads of the four beasts back in Daniel chapter 7. You say, wait a minute. All right, Doc, you, you, I know you, you teach in the School of Divinity, but you obviously don't have great math skills. You just said there's seven heads, the sum of the heads of the four beasts. I did. And there's a way to get there. And it doesn't involve algebra. The first three beasts in Daniel chapter 7 each had one head. But the fourth beast right, had four heads. So your first three plus one beast with four gives us seven heads. So I'm not crazy. In Daniel 7, we read that there are ten diadems on ten horns, which equals the ten horns of the fourth beast in Daniel chapter 7. And these ten represent ten kings who will follow that beast in Daniel 7. But in Daniel 7, these four beasts and the ten kings are the nations that are attacking and persecuting Israel. Grant Osborne notes this, for a short time, these ten kings will be given authority to wage war against the Lamb. But their final doom is certain. In other words, the beast from the sea is the Antichrist, he says, who will stand against Christ and try to usurp his authority and power. But listen, only Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords. Praise God. Our God has a plan that gives us hope. 
even though this beast is trying to establish and take over world leaders and control them. The second part of his agenda is seen in verses 3 and 4. It says, and I saw one of his heads as if it had been mortally wounded, and his deadly wound was healed, and all the world marveled and followed the beast. So they worshiped the dragon who gave authority to the beast, and they worshiped the beast saying, who is like the beast? Who is able to make war with him? Does that sound very familiar to you? The cadence of that statement? It should. Who is like our God? Who can triumph over him? You see, Satan continues in this storyline, moment after moment, verse after verse, to try to imitate and replace the authority of God in the world and in our lives and in the church. John Walver notes this very well, the identification of a head within a government over which he has authority is not a strange situation. The person is often the symbol of a government, and what can be said of that government can be said of him. What is said of this beast can be said of the nations that he will command. When we think of Nazi Germany, we think of Hitler, but there was the both associations were carrying out a nefarious and evil agenda. When you think of the United States, you can, you can quickly get to George Washington. You see, the symbols come together and represent both a people and a group and a nation as well as sometimes individuals. But as we see this beast doing what he is doing, if you recapture these words here with me, so they worship, he says in verse four, they worship the beast. Why did they worship the beast? Well, in verse 3, we find out why they worship the beast. The beast is a, is a person who shows up on the scene to command the, the allegiance and control evil and world leaders towards one agenda and one agenda only. That first agenda is to cause them to worship the dragon, to worship the agenda of the evil one that started in Genesis chapter 3. But he was wounded. There's much debate over what these words actually mean in the original language. Many faithful scholars understand this terminology that's used in verse 3 to mean this fatal wound is actually the same root word in the original language that, that describes the death of Jesus Christ. And because of that, they understand that this fatal deadly wound that was suffered by the first beast was likened unto one that would lead to death, but yet he came back to life. He recovered and he was healed. So the world stood back in awe. That explanation should make a lot of sense because we understand that the devil's greatest weapon has always been deception and his intention has been to imitate, to overtake the authority of God. This first beast is presenting a, a storyline that imitates the death and return to life of Jesus Christ, although he did not die. This is why the world worships the first beast. He imitated death and resurrection. Chuck Swindoll says this, how like Satan, the one who disguises himself as an angel of light in 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen, will provide the world with a copycat Christ, little c, to match all their man-centered ideas of personality, politics, and power. No wonder the whole world will be swept off its feet by this attractive, persuasive, figure. Can you imagine this ever happening on this planet? I can. 
I know there will be a day when there is a leader who will accomplish what is being described here in Revelation 13. The first agenda is to, is to cause all of the nations and to control all the nations of, and the evil leaders in government. Second is the worship uh, envy of evil leaders and to point that worship towards the dragon, towards Satan. And then the third agenda we see in this first beast is the temporary war of evil leaders. Listen, in Revelation chapter 5, it says, and he was given a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies, and he was given authority to continue for 42 months. I hope you've been taking notes. I hope you've been marking some of these numbers. Last week, the number 1,260, I'm pretty sure that's right, 1,260 came up. And how long was 1,260? Three and a half years. Today we read in this verse that he would continue for 42 months. How long is 42 months? Three and a half years. You guys are catching on quick. This is good. You guys are going to get an A. Anybody want a degree? I'm just kidding. We don't give them out like that. Verse 6, it says, then he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name. That's been his goal all along. He blasphemed his name, his tabernacle, and those who dwell in heaven. And it was granted to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And authority was given him over every tribe, tongue, and nation. And all who dwell on the earth will worship him, whose names, listen, whose names have not been written in the book of life of the Lamb, slain from the foundation of the world. Revelation, there are two main books. And this is one of those books that you want your name written in. This is the book you want to see your name in. This is the book, the book of life. The book of the life of the Lamb is the, is the book that records the name of every person who ever comes to a saving knowledge and, and through the, 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 the shed blood of Jesus Christ accepts the free gift of salvation by repenting of our sin and our lostness and coming to Him. Remember, our God has a plan that gives us hope. Salvation is our hope. This war campaign was a temporary war because he didn't bring his own authority. He was given authority. This isn't the same authority that he had because of the the dragon. This is the authority over a sovereign Lord who was allowing a storyline to play out. Authority was given to him and it will be taken from him. Once again, Osborne elaborates that it is clear that the beast's authority merely appeared to come from Satan when in reality, God was the true source. However, God allows that authority to be exercised only for a limited time, namely 42 months, which is a reference to the three and a half period that comprises this final period in human history. It's the end, the worst parts of the tribulation. This first beast continues his agenda with number four and and the deception of evil leaders. These last few verses of this first part are are so important. It says that all who dwell on the earth will worship him whose names have not been written in the book of life of the lamb that was slain from the foundation of the world. And if anyone has an ear, I'm giving you the message. John says, just listen. This is, people that read this are not living through this when John first wrote it. He's saying, I'm, I'm giving you this. If you have an ear, let, uh, just listen. Come to him. Our God has a plan that gives you hope. And in verse 10, he said, he who leads into captivity shall go into captivity. He who kills with the sword must be killed with a sword. And here is the patience and the faith of the saints. Here is the perseverance of the saints. 
Man, I love what Dr. Aiken says about this verse. He says, all those who live on the earth will worship the beast, because there, but there is a second group on, on this planet who, who are not earth dwellers and devotees of the dragon and the beast. They follow a different leader. They march to the beat of a different drummer with a capital D. They pledge allegiance to a different master. And unlike the earth dweller whose name was not written on, from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the lamb who was slaughtered, their name has been. The book of life is the book containing the names of the redeemed, the saved, those who follow the lamb have their name in this book. And we should note in this security of our salvation. This is the first beast and he has an agenda. But as we continue reading, we get into Revelation chapter 13 and we, we jump down to verse 11 and we read these words. He says, then I saw another beast coming up out of the earth and he had two horns like a lamb and spoke like a dragon. As we look at this second beast, it's so important for us to be, be just re reminded that the emphasis of the role of the first beast is the incredible activity of the false prophet on his master's behalf. And as we see this second beast unfold, we see that he has these seven characteristics. One, he's a deceiver. Verse 11 tells us that he comes up out of the earth and he has two horns. Horns don't sound very kind, do they? But a lamb does. He has two horns like a lamb, and he speaks these words, but like a dragon. The second beast is the false prophet, as we see in our scorecard, who is there to deceive. In verse 11, it also tells us that he's speaking. To be sure, his appearance may seem harmless, but the true test of a character is decided in the words that he uses. He's a deceiver. He speaks the words of Satan. Remember the words of Jesus in Matthew 7, 15? Warning us of false prophets who come in sheep's clothing, but on the inside, they're what? Ravenous wolves. That's who this second beast is. He's a false prophet. His goal is to point back honor and worship back to the first beast, whose intention was to rally the whole land to worship the dragon and carry out his devious plan to be like God. Satan twisted God's words in the garden and has never stopped. The second beast is also characterized by being a false worship leader in Revelation 13, 12. It says he exercises all authority of the first beast in his presence and he causes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. See how amazing this leader is? This, this leader has been, been destined to lead you. He was even fatally wounded, but he's been brought back to life. You should follow this leader. How in the world could he not be for you? And he will call for and lead people to worship beast number one, who is the Antichrist. Number, the fourth characteristic of the second beast is that he uses miracles to amaze and deceive. Look at verses 13 through, through 14. It says, he performs great signs so that even, he even makes fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men. And he deceives those who dwell on the earth by those signs which he was granted to do in the sight of the beast, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who was wounded by the sword and lived. Did you catch that? He will call down fire from the heavens for all to see. You remember chapters 11 and 12? Chapters 11 and 12, these two witnesses come in and fire is called down. Or maybe you remember 1 Kings 18, 28 and the story of Elijah with the prophets of Baal when he called down fire on the prophets of Baal, and it was consumed, the whole altar. You see, the second beast is, is characteristics, is, is, is taking those, those miracles and trying to duplicate and amaze and deceive. 
The fifth characteristic is that he will kill those who reject worshiping beast number one. In verse 15, it says that he was granted power to give breath to the image of the beast. That the image of the beast should both speak and cause as many as would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. The sixth characteristic we see in verse 16 is that he causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hand or on their foreheads, and that no one may buy or sell except one who has the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. The sixth characteristic of the second beast is that he will mark all Antichrist worshipers as his. You will have no authority, no opportunity. The people will have no, no currency without being marked as a, as a possession and a worshiper of the Antichrist. And I know many of you may be thinking, man, we're going to talk about Revelation 13. Maybe Dr. Temple is going to tell us a little bit more about this mark and how that's really going to work. And is it a special credit card or is it a special, you know, a lens they want to put in your eyeball and your contact, and, which I pretty much think would be cool. But uh, I know that what people want to do with all that information is not cool, so I probably won't do that. But, but it's tied up in the number seven here for the Antichrist, the seventh characteristic. And that seventh characteristic is that he will ultimately lead all people to worship a mere man. Verse 18 is so important as we move through towards the latter part of Revelation. It's a pinnacle verse. It's almost an apex of, of the storyline of the Messiah that goes all the way back to Genesis and persists all the way through eternity. In verse 18, we read these words. I was listening to this as I was driving to, to the property this morning, coming to church, and I'm listening to these words, and I hear these words, this is wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast. Listen, don't miss it. For it is the number of a man. His number is 666. I think I put this in your notes on the app, and if not, I'm, I'm still going to go over them. But listen to what Dr. Aiken says when he describes this. And I love this. This gives so much deep dimension and understanding to where we're headed when it comes to seeing God's plan unfold. In verse 18, it calls us for wisdom. Now, let me just say this. I tell my, 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 my family knows this. Students in my classes know this. The definition of wisdom is this, to see things the way that God sees them. You want true wisdom. See things the way that God sees them. And the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The holy reverence to God and him alone is the beginning of seeing things the way that he sees them. Dr. Aiken says, perhaps the wise person would avoid this hermeneutical quicksand altogether, and he may be right. But an important statement in that verse might lead us to make a cautious suggestion. This statement is this, it is the number of a man. His number is 666. And I think the number is more of a description than an identification. Listen to this, six is the number of man. He was created on the sixth day, and he has been given six days to work. In contrast, the number of perfection God has already declared is seven and completeness. And the superlative of seven is 777. He is, this, this, this antichrist, this false prophet especially, is the best man can produce, but he is just a man. He is, quote, the completeness of sinful incompleteness. The ultimate in coming up short. 
He is good enough to deceive many, but he is nowhere close enough to displace Jesus. Beloved, our God is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He has a plan that gives us hope. We don't know exactly what this mark is going to be, but even like David Platt says, we know that throughout history, all believers who do not worship the ways of the devil and his agenda, although sometimes very deceptive and under the currents, we always will fight and be in a battle when we fight the idolatry of this world, plain and simple. John records that the number of the beast is the number of a man. And here is wisdom. Here's how we see things the way that God sees him. Not now, nor ever, will any one of us, any one of us, be a seven, seven, seven. The Antichrist, the false prophet, or the dragon, no one. The number is the number of a man, and we are called to worship God and God alone. The invitation, the deception is replete throughout the agenda of the first and second beast. But beloved, our God has a plan that gives us hope. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. Friday is okay because Sunday is coming. Our God has a plan that gives us hope. There will never be an invitation that can stand against that truth. Let's pray. Father, I just thank you so much that you have assured us of your purposes. The purposes of your plan. The plan that you committed to and made a promise of so many thousands of years ago for us. And you've assured us that for those of us that belong to you, God, that you have a plan that gives us hope. In the midst of watching this this consequence continue to unfold, of watching the darkest days that will ever be seen on this planet occur, your plan gives us hope today, gives us hope in this moment. For all of us in this place who, who are walking through one of the darkest days of our lives, We may be smiling on the outside, but we are so broken and deeply wounded on the inside. God, will you you just share your hope with them in this moment? God, may may we see your name lifted up in the ways that we respond to you and your word and to the the promises that are sure because your name is a strong tower and all those who run into it are safe. This morning, King of Kings is in our midst. We never have to fear evil again. Let's all stand together. The messages of Revelation can become so discouraging. The descriptions of the events that not only will occur, but must occur totally throw us off and keep our eyes on how to fix these things, but God has already declared a plan that will fix it. Because our God has a plan.
that gives us hope. And that hope is found in him and him alone. In these final moments, we have so many people that gather at the front of this, this sanctuary every Sunday morning after a message and they are gifted and been blessed by God and called by God to be able to take time to pray with you. And for those of you that say, I've never invited and received the ultimate hope that is found in Jesus Christ. I've never, I've never accepted that salvation that he offers so freely. I, I promise you, everyone at the front of this place, they will, they will have the best day they've ever had if they get an opportunity to introduce you and walk with you in your decision to reach out and to lay hold of that hope. As our team leads in worship, respond as God is prodding your heart. What is he saying to you? Because I promise you for his people, he has a plan that gives us The altar is open. Let's sing this chorus again. Thank you for worshiping with us today. We're so glad you joined us. If you prayed to receive Christ today, we'd love to hear from you. We want to help you as you begin this new journey of faith in Jesus Christ. Send an email to the address on the screen, pastor at trbc.org. Likewise, if you've never accepted God's free gift of salvation, the forgiveness of sins made possible by the death and resurrection of Jesus, but you'd like to know more, we're here to help you. Just reach out to us and we'd love to tell you more. Our mission at Thomas Road is to change our world by developing Christ followers who love God and love people. If you'd like to help us fulfill that mission by giving to our ministry, go to the link on your screen and make your contribution today. Help us help others with the life-changing truth of God's love.